Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen sits down with Michael Trout for the 12th and final episode of our 12-part series with Mr. Trout. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. I guess I was thinking about um, what you were saying earlier in terms of, you know, what is pathology and what is adapting? And, And I think that is a thread that often runs through some of what I believe that you're teaching and telling us um, is that some of the ways we morph, (laughs) so to speak, are adaptive and useful, Um, you know, and how do do we decide uh, this is pathology versus this is adapting and and shouldn't be taken away. You know, I think of this sometimes with, uh, we've had this, for example, um, with children who are in foster care, and they're really in that place where they're moving from home to home. We're not sure what's going to happen to them. Um, We don't know if they're going to be adopted. They've maybe been you know, kicked out of a few homes, so to speak. And I've often thought, we don't want to try to work through that kid's defenses and persuade them to be vulnerable. What a bad idea. What a very bad idea. They need their defenses to survive the life that they have. And at least at this time. Do you agree with that line of thinking? I not only agree, I'd go one step further and say, I think it's a false choice between what is pathology and what is adaptation. Uh, my, my view has become that most of what we call psychopathology, and I'm not denying that it is, I'm not saying that it's good. I'm not even saying it's the best choice we could have made. But it is nonetheless always, by definition, I think, an adaptation. It may lead to terrible things. It may lead to unhappiness. That doesn't make it maladaptive from the point of view of the organism. As you seem to imply in your example, from the point of view of a child who has suffered multiple losses, how stupid would I have to be to accept the offer of foster mother number seven uh, to leap into her arms? Is it a sign of pathology that I'm um kicking the dog it's really awful but when i'm seeking power in a world where i've had none maybe it's adapted for me to seek power over small little more vulnerable things mm-hmm. when i don't have any idea where basic sustenance is coming from and i don't by that mean only food though i do mean food but every, every other kind of sustenance, then how crazy is it that I'm sitting in the kitchen at three in the morning, having disgorged the entire contents of the freezer and refrigerator onto the kitchen floor, and I'm sitting there surrounded by this food, and I'm eating what I can of it, and I'm only three years old. 
that looks really weird to a foster parent. It looks really maladaptive. But maybe it's a, not a good thing that we look at it that way. Maybe we're blocked in how we both understand the child, first of all, and secondly, know what to do next if we're only thinking in pathological terms. If we saw that that child sitting on the floor at three in the morning surrounded by the contents of the refrigerator is struggling to adapt to something, and it's not just hunger for food, then we're now in a better shape to know what to do about it. Yes. Imagine sitting on the floor with that child at three in the morning with all that food around and saying, oh, dear heart, you wonder all the time, where are you going to get what you need? You don't know that I've got everything you need and I'll give it to you free. I do, but you don't know that yet. And maybe you think what you get from me for free isn't really free. Maybe I've attached a string to it. Maybe, maybe you think, by the way, don't, don't imagine that I think the three-year-old understands any of this, but understands fully the tone and the empathy. Mm -hmm. As the mother says, maybe you think if you pull on this string and you come closer to me or you accept my food or you accept my hugs, just when you get right up next to me, I'm going to clobber you. I heard that that happened to you before, sweetheart. I heard, there, therefore, that you don't know which is which. You don't know which end to go to. You go toward a loving caregiver, and you're almost about to get what you need, and then you get clobbered. So here we sit, sweetheart. And you and see, there's no answer. No answer offered. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say... <clears throat> What you say, I know everyone hearing this is thinking, of course, that makes so much sense. Yes, that would be helpful. And at the same time, we seem to have great difficulty <laughs> approaching uh, situations like this in that manner. What, what, what do you have to say to us to help us with that dilemma? That, that's probably one of the, the, a good way for us to be starting to wind down on this. Um, Nothing I say will, will make a profound difference because really the answer is not in parents changing their mind or for that matter in clinicians changing their mind because clinicians are guilty of this preoccupation with psychopathology and lack of appreciation of adaptation just as much as parents are. So it's not a new intellectual idea I think it's some kind of meditation that leads us to appreciating all the ways that children adapt to their circumstances and taking a longer view and softening. I think only that will, will give us pause when we're so worshipful of diagnoses and so, so uh, awed by the idea of psychopathology and we, we, we can't seem to get, step over it and say, but, but so what? I mean, what, what does this behavior mean? This be, it, the question is not how do I get my kid to stop 
raiding the refrigerator at three in the morning, or where can I find yet bigger locks to keep him from doing it? The question is, what does it mean? And I don't know how parents or clinicians can get there, except to just meditate and soften and try to inculcate a, a, an attitude of wonder. I'm reminded um, of once when I heard Bruce Perry speak, there was someone in the audience that had raised their hands two or three different times. Well, what if it's ADHD? You know, what if it's, no, wait a minute. What if it's um, opposition? I don't know if it's ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder or what. And I think it was a, the third time <laughs> Bruce Perry said, you know what they have? They have, what do you expect? That's what it is. What do, how do you expect they would behave based on these experiences? That's what we have here. And I just always thought it was so profound. It's, it sure is. Um, imagine, yeah. imagine if, <clears throat> if he had answered with all of his authority that he contains in that big body and that wonderful articulateness he had, and he leaned over and said, Ah, I think I've got it. Your child is one of those rare, oh my goodness, I've not run across this very often. You might want to get this out because it's a little hard to spell. I think your heart child has heartbreak. Oh, yeah. Go on to the next questioner and let the person fuss with the idea that it could be that's really probably what it is ah oh, yes hmm. but it wouldn't be enough for most of us we couldn't think of a treatment plan for heartbreak of course we don't have a treatment plan for any of the other diagnoses either but we think we do yes we do and we might have some medications yeah <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. That's uh if we could stay in that space more. And I think that um we have a lot of external pressures, and I think we talked about this somewhat earlier when we talked about creating manuals and evidence-based practices and making sure you do it just this way. You know, we we work in um a culture in our field that that doesn't embrace curiosity and wonder that wants us you know you get one assessment session and <laughs> then we'll pay for like five sessions after that and that's all you get so you better figure it out so I think it does take conscious discipline to be trying to think about this differently because we have a lot coming at us um, at various angles that wants us to just come up with a diagnosis and, and, and a way to treat it. Yeah. So this is um, the last thing I want to ask you, Michael. Um, and uh, I'd like to know 
what you have learned. I know you've done a lot of work now in healthcare, um, and and looking at um, with your with your wife Mary Colarudis about how relationships impact healing. Um, you know, we also have all of this information we referenced earlier about the ACEs study and that psychological experiences or heartbreaking experiences affect our health, uh, which I think some of us in, in, in mental health are thinking, oh good, maybe now someone will take us seriously, since we always have an inferiority complex, I think, about what we do or often do. And I was wondering if there was any lessons that you, you have taken from that work. I mean, moving your work into such a different uh, place uh, than maybe where you had worked before, um, out, although there was probably still some overlap. But what have you learned from like talking with hospitals and doctors and nurses and, and, and those types of folks about some of this or hearing experiences of patients? Well, I'll take the last one first. What we've learned from patients is that it's pretty much what we've learned from children now that I think of it. In, in our in our world, which is that um, this other stuff does not matter very much. What mattered to me in the hospital, if you really want to know the truth, was that one doctor. You know that he sat here with me and he held my hand and he talked to me for all, well, I bet it was 20 minutes about what was going on with me. I'm never gonna forget him. And we would go look at the chart and find out that the doctor had been there for two minutes, but he did sit down. And when we ask about that particular doctor, people would say, yeah, he's just got a way with patients. I don't know, he, he builds confidence. and People just feel really comfortable with him. And then when we, we would look at some of the now federally required uh, data on uh, rehospitalization, for example, uh, the cost of care and so on, we found that that doctor tended to have patients who tended to not come back within the 30 days that's usually measured uh, by the feds, not come back to the hospital. And overall, their uh, healthcare costs were actually less. And I came to believe that the root cause was not superior technical treatment, it was superior interpersonal care by that particular doctor. I think children know that, babies know that. They know that it's not our programs and strategies that help them. And they probably even know it's not that our programs or strategies that help their parents. And medical patients and hospitals know it too. That there's something about being treated uh, like a whole organism, a whole person uh, that helps people get better and therefore not come back as much. This is not to say that diseases are imaginary. I'm not even attacking for that matter in the mental health world. I'm not even attacking diagnostic categories. I'm just saying there's more, a lot more. Oh, I love how you're saying that, um, that, that there is a lot more and um, you know, I'm just uh, 
thinking about just recently a knee surgery I had and, and people said, did you like the doctor? And I've been going on and on about this doctor, about how wonderful he was. And one of the main things I've told people now that I'm thinking about it is he just sat there and took the time for me to ask him whatever I wanted. And I didn't really have a lot to ask, but I felt like I could, like I wasn't being rushed through or something. He would just sit there forever. Yeah. And, and because he was willing to, he didn't have to. <laughs> you know, you should write that down, what you just now said. That is key for healthcare people because they are convinced that if they give in to parent, patients' need, hunger to be talked to and to be sat with, that it'll just come out of the woodwork. Everyone will want them and they won't get anything done. Yes. The truth yes. is exactly what you said. When a patient knows that it's available, they will use a little of it and not more. Yes, yes, which is a, a an important point for, you know, like you said, practicing in medicine or the type of practice we're, we're doing with um, children and families. So, well, thank you so much, Michael, for this time. It has been wonderful, and I'm really excited for us to put this together to produce it. Um, I always think it's better if people can hear more from Michael Trout. Very good. Thanks. <laughs> so this is a good thing. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode was the 12th in our 12-part series with Michael Trout. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.